You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Guide Post. We got Tony and Cody here today. We got a little bit of a special guest. So this is going to be like one of those hybrid deals. You know, we did the shop talk. Uh, got real great response on that. So this is, and we've, we're doing a couple of intro videos to, you know, people who are new to the association and we're, we're pointing out people who have really, you know, kind of stuck their neck out for advocacy. And, uh, and, and so, you know, we're, we're trying not to be all doom and gloom, all nerd science, all policy, and kind of show y'all, you know, that we're basically, when you get right down to it and boil it all down, we're just a bunch of folks who like to fish. Um, so, uh, you know, we had a pretty cool idea, ran into this guy, Cody's known him for a little bit. I was just fortunate enough to meet him. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we're like, man, he's going to make a great podcast guest. So Cody, um, you know, tell, tell the story of how we, uh, how we kind of came to know our, our newest guest on the podcast, kind of funny, kind of heartwarming. Yeah. Well, I've, I've known Nick for a bunch of years through work for Costa sunglasses. And when he was, uh, spending a bunch of time down in my neck of the woods on the treasure coast in Florida. And, um, we'll get into a couple stories I'm sure about some past adventures, but we were gearing up to go to Louisiana for the most recent redfish campaign and we were gearing up to go give testimony and everyone was going to fly in and head over to baton rouge and uh i talked to nick right before we went over there and was telling him about it and he's like oh why are you going there and i said we're going to do this 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 and this and he said oh i love louisiana man uh okay when do i need to be there and i think that story alone shows nick's character and what type of person nick is he's always down for whatever whether that's an adventure but more importantly down for something that can make the world a better place. And so I've done some hurricane relief work with Nick. We've done some fisheries work together now, and which is cool. But, you know, the progress happens in this realm when people, when I say this, you know, with a term that of endearment that I put myself under this umbrella and Tony as well, just average people go, man, I care about that thing. All right, I'll do it. I'll be there. Uh, when do I need to be there? And so Nick flew down. Minnesota um, gave testimony on Louisiana and why he loved it and when he had been there and his outlook and his, his perspective from the industry and the value of the fishery and uh, you could find that that testimony online maybe I might end up cutting this statement out but maybe I can find it and put it in this podcast right after this we'll see how much how much work I want to do on a Friday at 5 p.m but uh, you know uh, Nick gave great testimony and then more so than that, right, Tony? He, this dude didn't say, well, Tony, great to meet you. Cody, good to see you. I'm going back home. He hopped on the next plane, and he came down to Florida and went to the Captain's for Clean Water Gala to support Captain's for Clean Water and then went home. So, Oh, yeah, and then the whole, the whole time, it was like the whole time when we first met him from the moment y'all walked into that restaurant where me and Blaine were gorging ourselves on our 300th charred oyster of the day it was just like peas and carrots, right? It was like Nick had always been there. Um, 
and you find it was more game. like peas and Pontchartrain fried catfish covered in. There was no carrots. There was more the Pontchartrain. Hey, hey, that that was a hell of a recommendation from that guy. Yeah, so that's a, that's a good that's quick. a good story. Like that's a pretty funny story, Nick. But we'll get in. Let, we don't want to leave you out of this story, Nick. So why don't you just introduce I don't even yourself? Know if to everyone. Have we we'll even said his last name? So this is Nick. Jones. No, no. He's it's Nick Jones. We forgot about that. That yeah, we're a dime a dozen. Last name unimportant. <laughs> <laughs> no, the uh, the whole Louisiana thing was fun. I was I felt so fortunate to get to come down there with you guys. But that restaurant was that restaurant was off the charts. The last time it had been in Louisiana, the food is such a big motivator for me to travel. And so it was ironic. The first thing we did once we got in was we cruised straight to that restaurant, and it was like oh. Plates of oysters were already out. They were uh, belly busters for sure. I don't eat much dairy in those that first set of oysters that came out. <laughs> Loaded with cheese and jalapenos. And we all had to wake up early and everyone's very nervous trying to get their public comment ready and make sure they say exactly what they want to say. And everyone's really taking this seriously. And we're all sitting in the lobby at a hotel at like five in the morning with bubble guts just going oh too many trains, too many oysters yeah I, i'm not eating uh, i'm not eating jalapeno oysters ever again um oh my gosh listen before we get into all the fish stuff <laughs> i just had a flashback of that that individual who couldn't park <laughs> that was i'll tell you what man i've seen a lot in my life I never seen somebody roll over a parking barrier and drag it 15 feet. And I got a picture. That was one of the funniest things I ever seen in my life. You know what though? Kudos. I think she was in a Honda CRV and the kudos to Honda CRVs, because I don't think I've ever seen a vehicle not get completely torn up after lifting <laughs> a cement parking barrier and dragging it 15 feet. I think that yeah, they're, not, even, they're not like our sponsor, man. But I'll tell you what, that was a tough car. That was a tough car. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now a commercial break from Honda. Do you have a CRV? Do you struggle with parking at a Motel 6 in the middle of Louisiana at 10 p.m.? That's very well lit. Do you like to drag cement barriers across the parking lot for no reason when there are 15 other open parking spots that you could have pulled into forward? Honda CRV, and the funny part was that she could she could see us all watching her, and she would pull she would try to pull in the space, not make it, and it it's not like there weren't other spaces open that had like multiple open spaces where you didn't need to keep it between the lines. She could have parked and taken up two spaces if she wanted to, but she would do a loop around the parking lot and come right back and try to get into that same spot like a like a dog that wasn't leaving. Uh, Nick, I got to tell you, we're pretty we're pretty nice too. Like we were trying not, we were, our conversation was like, should we help her? Or is she going <laughs> to like, is that going to be weird if a bunch of like old fishing guides are like walking up and being like, Hey, do you need help? Like, is you know, she going to call like the Baton Rouge police <laughs> yeah. on us or something like, you know, it was, it was one of those weird places where we were, it wasn't like we were just, but my goodness, like that's the record, right? I never seen somebody try to get into a parking one parking spot more times and in that stretch of time and i mean just like woof, man that's so rough. you're looking for your next tow vehicle consider honda and your uh yeah 
Yeah, if you're, and if you're wondering why your insurance rates went up or why rental cars are so expensive, I got a, I got a window in, window into that matrix too. Like, woo, man, like. Whew. So let's 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 take this through the lens. Let's go through the lens of how Nick got connected with ASGA and talk a little bit about the Redfish thing, and then we'll take a step back because I feel like I've known Nick for a handful of years and I've heard a bunch of cool stories, but I feel like I only know. Uh, skin barrier about a bunch of the different badass places he's been and guided and fished. And so, you know, I guess to take a step back, maybe I'd be curious, Nick, you know, what, what, cause I kind of already explained how it happened, but like, what, what prompted you to take that approach of like, you know, F it, I'm, I'll be there. I'll do it. You know, I'll, but why do you look at life that way? And what specifically about Louisiana made you be like, man, that's special. I got to be a part of that. So I guess it's a, a two part question. So Louisiana, we can start with that. Louisiana is amazing. Um, you know, I, I fished there, uh, let's see, last year was the first time or a little over a year ago. And it blew my mind. I had heard all the stories and a lot of the other places that I've guided. I've heard the stories from my clients. And, you know, it's just one of those places that you hear about it enough and it just starts to hold this, this place in your, in your head. So going to get to experience it my first time was, I mean, it was earth shattering. Honestly, I've seen a lot of really cool fisheries and I've been privy to a lot of really cool things happening on the water just from being there. Right. And Louisiana is just so special because these bull reds, they're, they're these huge aggressive fish and you're in such a, if you don't, you've never been to Louisiana, you don't realize how expansive the marsh is. So when you get there, you realize like, man, this is so wide open. Like how do these guys even, it's all nondescript. Like how do these guys even know where to go to find these fish? And it turns out that you can go just about anywhere and find them. In fact, before I'd ever gone there, uh, an old friend in North Florida had told me about the, the first time that they went there and they started doing trips every year. And he said, you know what? Uh, you don't need to know anything about it. If you if you were to go there and put your boat in, if you have half a brain, you're going to be able to to find fish, you know, within the first day that you're there. Um, you basically look for your fishy spots, whatever. But they're they're so prolific there that you'll go get into them with, you know, obviously you want to go with a guide because they have the local knowledge of the water. But I mean, that's a huge that's a huge thing to say about a fishery, right? And then going there myself and seeing it, it, it blew my mind. It was, it was really, really cool. And being able to catch those fish on a fly rod took it to a whole nother level. So it was very special to me after going to see that, uh, going to see it that first time. And honestly, after that trip, it was like, well, when am I coming back here? And how often am I going to be able to come back? It was like, it just changed the way I thought about doing a fishing trip. And for people who live here in the continental United States, it's like from just about wherever you are in the country, it's it's not a long flight to get there. And you have access to like some of the most world-class fishing on the planet. So that I mean, that was the, the biggest motivator. Uh, to the other side of that question, you know, I, I love fishing. And like I said, I've been lucky enough to fish in a lot of different places in the world. So you... If you're not ready to jump at an opportunity to do the right thing for a fishery or for a place for no other reason other than the fact that it's just the right thing to do, then you should reevaluate why you're in the game at all, right? Like 
even if I'd never fished in Louisiana, it, it doesn't take, uh, you know, it doesn't take a senior level scientist to figure out trends. You know, if you look at the data and if it's the right thing to, to go and, you know, and, and it wouldn't have been right for me to go speak on behalf of a fisher like that had I not experienced it myself. But my point is, is if, if it's the right thing to do, then you jump in and you get your hands dirty and, and you go to the work because it's the right thing to do. I enjoy fishing and that's a place that I hope to return to for the rest of my life. I'm willing and able. So it was a no brainer for me to drop whatever I was doing to go do it. The funny thing is, I think you called me on a Saturday and you guys were meeting on a Monday and it was like, oh, dang, I didn't even realize because I'm not on social media that often. Um, every once in a while, I log into my Instagram and doom scroll and feel worse about my life. Rot your brain. Yeah, exactly. So I, I didn't even know that it was happening. And after talking with you, it was like, oh, well, I'm going to start looking at flights right now because I want to be down there for it. So it was it was fortuitous. I'm happy you had reached out and just casually mentioned it because otherwise I would have been none the wiser. And I prefer not to be on the sidelines when it comes to, to doing good things. So it, it all worked out. You know, I think it's important. And what's funny is like, you could look at stuff like this and, you know, look at people that have been doing it a long time. Like Tony, I think is 473 years old, or maybe he just looks that way. I don't know. He's nodding on mute. So I know he's not taking offense to it. Uh, but you know, like this, this gentleman like Tony and, and all the other guys that are involved and stuff like this that have been doing it for a long time. And you look at those people as role models to see how you can, get into this, participate, what it takes to mean to participate at a, at a high level. But there's also is like a really good example that someone like myself and yourself can set, which is like, you don't have to be an expert to show up. Like you don't, you don't, there's not a certain point where it's finally okay for you to leave the sidelines. You can just get on the field and start getting your reps in a, in an appropriate way. I just got off a past podcast recording and I don't know which way these will all come out, but Towards the end, I was talking with Ben Wally from Maine and I said, you know, this, this ethos that I'm starting to believe in is like, it's okay to care. Like you can care about something without being a mega expert. You can care about something without experiencing it every day or being the biggest stakeholder in it. We all have our own roles and our voices and it's okay to care about something that other people don't care about as well. You know, like it's, and so to see someone like yourself, I think it sets a really good example. And maybe there's someone that listens to these podcasts that goes like, man, I love what those guys are doing, you know, but you know, they doesn't have the courage. I just don't know enough to speak on one of those striped bass meetings, but I listen to ASGA and the guideposts and one day I will, whoever that person is, I hope you're listening. Like Nick had a really impactful comment. He took his time, developed it thoughtfully. I'm going to, I'll go chop it up and put it in at some point here, but like, it's okay to care about something and not be the biggest expert. You still have a very valuable role in these conversations. Mm -hmm. And any action is good action, right? Like nothing, nothing gets done with anything without starting to do something. So I think oftentimes I've, I've been victim of this myself is that you think, oh, well, I'm not going to have a big enough impact to move the needle at all. So I'm not going to do anything, right? Like that, that used to be part of me, but I, I've grown out of that. And I realize now that any action is good action right? Just doing something, even if it's little, like no big step happened without all the little steps. So it's easier for me to wrap my brain around, you know, just go do something. That's like 
Cody, when we did the hurricane relief stuff, I was about to say this like, is man, why we the, have why we have PTSD from U-Hauls, right? Like I literally saw yeah, a U-Haul exactly. on the highway like a week ago, and I said, "Oh God." Sarah said, "What?" I said, "I just can't see that shape and size U-Haul." And for context, you know, there was a nice. uh, a hurricane that destroyed the west coast of Florida, and uh, the captains of clean water guys were rallying a community for support, and me and Nick were like, "Let's," we, you know. They're starting to set up different supply drops all around the state to get supplies from different areas. And me and Nick uh, and a couple other uh, great look Ed Zayak, and he's, we used the DOA um, lures location to be the drop site. And Ed was super supportive. And we started, you know, we're like, all right, we can figure this out. And there's probably groups here that can help to like cover this. But Nick was like, dude, I don't need a green light from anyone or anything or a corporate credit card. We just started slapping Walmart freaking receipts on our cards. And we're like, we rented a U-Haul and we drove that alley from the East Coast of Florida to the West Coast like twice a day sometimes. And we drove for like two weeks straight. And we did whatever it was too many times of just like we were on the phone with two U-Hauls in front of each other on the highway, like just listening to music over the phone. And it, it, it was like mind rotting. I hate that drive now. And I'm absolutely terrified of 26 foot U-Hauls. But, you know, I think that's the type of person Nick is. And it's a great testament to what you just said. Like, Just do something like you, we're not the Red Cross, but like we heard stories from that about the type of people that were able to impact just by bringing water and gasoline for those people. Right. So. Yeah. It, it was, it was, yeah, it was a simple thing, a simple gesture that led to something much bigger than I think either of us had anticipated that it would be, right? It just started off as like, oh, well, you know, let's be here to, let's, let's put a post out on social media. And I'm happy that it went the way that it did. But at first it would start as like, well, let's just man this drop site and see, you know, if supplies flood in, great, we'll, we'll make a trip and run them over. And then it turned into like, oh my God, there are so many people making donations to this drop site. And then it was like, okay, well, let's make a drive over. And then it turned into doing multiple drives every day. I want to say over the course of that time, I must have put, we each must have put 6,500 miles over the course oh, of like three, over the course of three and a half weeks on our, on our vehicles, just driving back and forth. And so it's like, that's a great example of a, little steps turning into like big strides where, where we were doing good. And it was big impact was through a million people, right? Because we weren't the only two people again, to also give context. Benny was doing it from down South. There was a bunch of guys from all over the different States, all these different, you know, there were guys coming down from South Carolina, bringing down resources from all sorts of coastal communities. And it was just a big impact through a million small voices. And that's a great metaphor for conservation. Right. It's, you know, like the thing in Louisiana, to, to take that as an example, it doesn't just affect the people living in Louisiana. Right. It affects anybody who experienced that fishery. And I'd be willing to say that there's people all. Well, I know there's people all over the planet who make that trip to go to the marsh to catch those big bull reds. So, you know, it's the it's the little steps from all these different people that come together to to make it more impactful. So that's, it's, it's a lesson that's resonated with me more and more as I've gotten older, that just any little bit of action is good action. It doesn't matter if it's not the biggest thing. I'm the, I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm the long tooth here. Um, and what I'll tell you is like one thing that y'all probably haven't like wrapped your head around and you will, as you get older, you know, you give people hope when you do that. 
and like y'all are just y'all are just doing what your heart tells you and i and i know there's a, obviously a, a ton of people involved and you know what i'm saying is it, it goes to all the people who were involved benny and the boys from south carolina you know man you can't and i'm not i'm certainly not comparing a conservation issue to like the devastation of a category four or five hurricane that that slams into the side of florida is not there's no there's no comparing that i mean just the loss of life and property and everything else but you know the reality is this country you know the one thing i think the people who still believe in it pride themselves on is that when bad things happen there's good people who will step up and you know it doesn't matter if that's just a local thing like a bad storm comes through and you know a tree falls on your neighbor's house and you're over there as soon as the sun comes up with a chainsaw so they can start putting their life back together or something you know just literally like you know just catastrophic like what y'all were helping out with or a conservation issue where there's like good people who you know are worried about their livelihood and their income and the resource and then all of a sudden like all these folks come from all over the place and rally to them and really i mean what it does what you're doing is you're giving people hope and you know that's the one thing that that's that is the one thing that pandora trapped in her box when she opened up that box and all the stuff was released on humanity though the, the one thing that was left was hope and i think it's just good people on this earth is you set an example that gives them hope and then you know what happens is when something happens, you know, a year, two, 10 years later, those people remember when other people stepped in that they may not even know and, and gave them hope that they're, they'll do the same thing and pay it back. And I just think that there's, you know, for humanity, there's so much good that you can do in the world. And it's not, it's not getting into a fight with someone on social media it's the folks that will actually stand up and give, you know, the real important stuff, which is time, your time and, and your energy and your knowledge to help, you know, and, and I think, I think even the boys in Louisiana and I, well, the girls, I mean, Meredith McCord was there and there was a whole bunch of ladies there too, and gave some slamming testimony. But I think, you know, they see that. And they feel like they're not so alone in their efforts and it gives them hope and it makes them wake up the next day to keep fighting because they know there's a whole community that's going to rally around them. And I just bring all this up because I think from the first day that we put the first brick down at the guides association, it wasn't about saving striped bass. It was about building a community that'll last well beyond me which as Cody said, I'm 437. So that ain't the clock tomorrow. The clock's ticking. Right. So I'm a, you dude, you know, I'm a cockroach. I'm going to be around longer than both of you too. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's about, it's about building something where 
you know, somebody can say, we got a problem here. Can you help? And we don't look at it and say, well, we don't have the funding. We don't have, this isn't in our strategic plan, uh, you know, whatever excuse. And we kind of all look at each other and the metric is, is this the right thing to do? And you go, well, yeah, I hadn't been sleeping much in the last few years anyway. Let's do it. And, and I just, you know, I love the fact that the best part of this job, and I've said it on podcasts before, is that you meet people like Nick who are cut from the same cloth and it just keeps growing and it just keeps growing and going. And it gives, that's what gives me hope. So like all the stories I just said, that gives me the hope to keep going. Cause I got to tell you something, man, every once in a while I wake up and I'm like, this sucks. Like I'm, this is, I'm tired of getting my ass kicked in. And then I, then I think all the people that are rallying to the flag and I'm like, well, shit, you know, you got, I got to keep going just for them. They're giving me hope. So, you know, it works both ways. Yeah. Well, that's just reminded me, you know, one of the people we met at that supply drop was uh, John off the grid, John, who's done a bunch of design. We've worked with a couple different artists and uh, he just walked up. He's like, Hey, I got a bunch of stuff to drop off. And I think Nick was like, dude, is that Cheech and Chong holding a tarpon on your shirt? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, dude, where did you buy that? He's like, Oh, I drew it. I'm an artist. So we connected them. He's like, yeah, you know, he's just trying to do the right thing. And we're, he's just trying to support, you know, he got some supplies on his own accord, drove down from wherever. I think he drove pretty decent distance to, to drop them off at us. And that's how you connect with someone that you're like, man, we're from the same cloth. And it's like, hey, well, you want to do a design for uh, a hat for ASGA? And fast forward, you know, the last year and a half, he's done a couple different designs that have been huge for us and helped us continue to, you know, promote our campaigns and do a little fundraising. And oh, even for a, a little teaser for anyone listening, he did like a graffiti style striper and a bluefish that are going to come out on performance hats this spring. And same way as the last, uh, last hat drop, limited quantity. And once they're gone, they're gone. So keep an eye out for those. A little teaser there. But like, like you said, you know, it's just you, you set up in the town square and you say, I'm trying to do a little good. And you feel super alone. There are a lot of times we're just sitting in that parking lot alone. And then one car pulls up and it's someone that looks and feels and, you know, thinks the same way you do. And they're like, yeah, man, I, I'm with you. I have to here. I'm here to support this hurricane thing. I'm here to support this fishery campaign. And one becomes two and two becomes three. And all of a sudden there's 20 people in a parking lot or 50 people on a striper call instead of 15. And so I think that, that, you know, uh, it's like, uh, you build that groundswell of momentum where it's one, one can become two and it's probably so hard to go from two to four, but eventually it becomes easier to go from 10,000 to 50,000 than it does to go from two to four because you get this momentum. So the, you know, we owe that all to people like Nick who are like, Oh, you're doing what two days from now. All right, cool. I'll find someone to watch my dog. I'll be there. Let me know where I need to stay. And, uh, yeah, really appreciate that. And also, I'm just, I'm kind of curious. I want to unpack a little bit uh, about Nick's past in fishing because I know he spent a bunch of time in Baja and Alaska. And I don't even know. I think he might have done Pluto or I, he was on like the ship that went down to the Titanic right before that next one blew up. He's been all sorts of places. <laughs> so I don't know if you want to tell us about the any. Soul, the oh. sole survivor of the submarine accident yeah. that went down to the <laughs> Titanic a couple of months See, ago. Before that got to the bottom, he ejected and shot the <laughs> surface. 
Dude, he that little dude can hold his breath, man. Let me yeah. tell you, dude. Talk about free dive. <laughs> so Nick, tell us a little bit about where where you got it, where you know your fishing journey. Where how did it uh how did it all play out? So I had a I had a very weird introduction. I'm I'm gonna preface this with I had a weird introduction into fly fishing because I I was born and raised in Minnesota. So we had I had my spin rods and bait casting rods. You know, my dad was the one who got me into fishing. But it it wasn't like something that I went out and did every day. Like we'd go and bum around the little ponds by our house and we'd catch carp. And that would be mostly it. My dad every year would take us on a trip up to northern Minnesota, Lake of the Woods, um, on the border of Canada. And we'd catch walleye, um, northern pike, smallmouth bass, stuff like that. So that was kind of my my formative years with fishing. Um, It was always something I enjoyed doing. I loved it. but you know, there were other things in my life that consumed my time more. Like I grew up in Minnesota playing hockey for 12 years. So that occupied a lot of my time growing up. Um, I was on all the travel teams and we did all that. So, you know, fishing came into my life more as an adult. It, it was more impactful in my life as an adult than it ever was when I was a kid. Um, like I had the foundation, but I didn't have like the the full on lust for it. So I got my degree in marine biology from the University of San Diego. Uh, I graduated in 2008. And my first job that I took after school was as an outdoor education instructor on Catalina Island for the Catalina Island Marine Institute. And it was a really cool job. It like, I think my real education came from that job. It wasn't necessarily from school, but it, that job pushed me outside my comfort zone in so many different ways that my my personality really unfolded and I became the person I, I really am today. So while I was there, I I became a dive instructor, um, was free diving all the time. Um, you know, we uh, we all had spear guns, so we'd go and shoot halibut or calico bass or white sea bass or in the summertime, yellowtail would come to the Southern California coast there. So I worked that job for four years. And after I finished that job, I was lucky enough to get hired as a spearfishing guide in the southern tip of Baja. So that's kind of where like the love for fishing really began. And it wasn't even hook and line fishing. It wasn't fly fishing. It was spearfishing. So doing that job, I, I, you guys will see this is kind of a, a reoccurring theme in my employment throughout my life is I didn't. I didn't deserve the opportunity to go down there. It was just kind of a funny happenstance thing that worked out in my favor. I didn't have any experience outside of, you know, my limited time on Catalina spearfishing, but I had my dive instructor. And so the guy was like, well, I really need a, a spearfishing guide, but since you're a dive instructor, you know, like I can have you do dive instructing stuff and I'll teach you the spearfishing stuff. So I went down and it was amazing. I got to spend eight hours every day in the water. So guiding spearfishing is very different from guiding other types of fishing in that as a spearfishing guide, you get to participate in the activity as well. So you help, you know, throw your client's gear in the water, you get them set up on the drift you're going to do. And then it's your job as a guide to be able to tell them and show them, Hey, look, the fish are down at 85 feet or they're at the thermocline at 60 feet. Um, and you kind of help them approach how to fish a spot, but it's also your job to kind of show them, you know, if a, if a person can't get it done and they say, well, this spot stinks, you know, there's no fish here. It's your job as a guide to be like, no, 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 there are fish here. Here's a 60 pound Kubera. This is what they look like. And this is how you go hunt them. And then 
they hopefully go and have the same success. So while I was down there, uh, the the second place that I worked for on the Pacific side was in Toto Santos, and a guy by the name of Jeffrey Fezco had come down to help start a fly fishing program for the guy we were working for at that time. So to make a long story short, Jeff and I both ended up quitting that job at the same time. It just this scenario wasn't right. He wasn't getting to do any fly fishing. I wasn't really getting to do any spear fishing, and it was kind of a sour situation. So we both left. So we're in Southern Baja. Jeff is itching to go fly fishing and I am itching to find, you know, my next gig because that era was done for me. So I had to drive back up to San Diego. Jeff was going to get a flight out of Cabo, but I said, Hey, you know, instead of, instead of getting a flight out of Cabo, it's probably going to be expensive to do an international flight. Why don't you just drive up the coast with me? I'd rather have somebody to drive up with than drive up solo. And he said, well, oh, you know, that works out perfectly because I really want to fly fish while I'm down here. So like, if you know spots we can go fish, like I'll, I'll give you a rod to fish with and tie a fly on for you and kind of teach you about casting. If, you know, you'll take me to a spot where, you know, we can catch rooster fish. So I thought, oh, well, I mean, yeah, I don't know anything about fly fishing, but like, I know a spot we can go where I take like shore dives to, to go look for rooster fish. We see them there all the time. Like, we'll go there. So we ended up going to this spot and he gave me a, an old Scott nine weight, an old beat up brush fly. Um, and said, you know, here, here's your setup. You know, I'm going to go 50 yards down the beach from you. You just kind of watch what I do and you know, we'll, we'll kind of feed off each other, whatever. So we go to this spot and I'm watching him cast, you know, a little ways down for me and I'm kind of figuring it out myself. And we were both, we got into this big school of ladyfish. So I had quickly figured out like, I guess the basics of setting the hook and like clearing the line and, and fighting a fish in. So as I'm watching him, I'm like getting my line out maybe 25 to 35 feet. It, not, not very far, but far enough that I'm out just past the, the surf break. So I'm in the zone where you can potentially see a rooster fish. Now, mind you, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just watching what he's doing. I'm there simply enjoying this activity because it's a beach that I know well. He's in heaven because he knows he's got the chance to catch a rooster fish. And I'm literally looking to my right down the beach, mimicking what he's doing. So as we're fishing, you know, I, I run down towards the water to throw my cast. You know, once it's in the water, I let it sink for, you know, five seconds into my countdown. And then I backpedal up the beach as I'm stripping back in and, I'm not focused at all on what I'm doing. I'm looking down the beach, watching him. And on one of my back pedals up the beach, you know, the line stopped in my hand and I thought, huh, you know, I'm, I'm stuck on something. And then it obviously exploded away. And I thought, holy moly, like what is happening? And line is screaming off my reel. It was an old cheeky 425, whatever it was, it was old cheeky reel. So Jeff sees me and I'm just kind of holding my rod up and I'm just looking at it like with wide eyes. And so he runs over and is like, dude, what, what's going on? Like you got into something like, did you see it? Like, what was it? And I was like, I, I have no idea, dude. I was watching you. It just like kind of stopped and then it started going. And so fish ran way out there. I don't know how many yards of backing it took, but you know, we were getting close to seeing the base of the spool 
on the reel. So Jeff was like, okay, dude, don't worry about it. I'm going to walk you through all this. So he adjusts the drag and says like, okay, you know, go walk a little ways up the beach and I want you to reel. He, he was like the ultimate coach. He, he was perfect. It was like his sweet spot for like managing the stress of this situation. And to be honest, I didn't even know to be stressed about it. Like I was so blue or green, excuse me. I, I was just, I was out of it. I had no idea. So, you know, after maybe 30, 40 minutes or so, we get the fish in the surf and we can see it's a rooster fish. And Jeff is like buzzing. He's so excited because he can see it and he knows how momentous this is. And I, I do not, I'm, you know, just a passenger on his ride for this experience. And so we landed the fish and I'll never forget. He, when he tailed the fish, he held both of his hands up above his head with the, with a fish in his right hand and screamed at the top of his lungs. He was so ecstatic. And it like, it sent pure joy into my body and it, hmm. it, it forever changed me. It, it honestly was that impactful of an experience. So, you know, we went down, we, it, it all happened so quickly. It was like over the course of maybe 20 seconds that he handed me the fish. We took a couple photos and then we sent it off in the surf. It swam away. And Jeff was like, dude, you know, guys have been coming down here for like 20 years, once a year for, you know, five days at a time to get their shot at a fish like this. And they never catch it. And like your first time ever doing this, like stepping on this beach, like you caught one of these fish, like you don't have any idea how big this is, like how lucky you are. Like this is like, it's life-changing stuff. So 30 minutes later, he catches one from the beach and now he's in heaven too. He caught another big one. These are like, you know, 30 to 45 pound size class fish. And we, we were in heaven. It, It was such a cool thing. So after that, Jeff was like, you know what? You're not a, you're not a spear fishing guide anymore. Like you're a fly fishing guide. Um, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to teach you everything you need to know about it. I didn't know how to tie knots. I didn't know what waders were. I was, I was just a dummy and, and Jeff took me under his wing and, uh, I got a job with him, uh, guiding steelhead up in Southeast Alaska and Sitka. And that was the beginning of my journey. And like that, that experience was so formative for me. It, it really did change my life and it, it gave me, it gave me like the the touchstone to the natural world that I needed to want to fiercely fight for it, right? So that one fish, you could you could extend that to any other fishery, but I had it now. I had that like that fire in me that like this is special, you know. This was so impactful to me that you know what, Nick? I bet you I know the reason why too, because you wanted other people to experience it. Well, and, and that was part of what set me off as a, as a guide, right? Like I didn't, I, I, it's almost like he got me into it for the right reason. It wasn't, you know, a selfish thing where, oh, I want to go experience this fishery. So I'm going to guide there because that's my way to do it. It was, I want to share that feeling that he helped give me with other people. And, you know, I was lucky enough throughout my course of time guiding that I was able to do that. I can think of several instances. Uh, I got to go guide in the Seychelles again because of Jeff Fezco. And I can remember there were times out there where people had never fished before and they caught these just momentous fish that it just like, it just gives you that kind of buzz in your body that you just can't get otherwise. How come when I get anglers on my boat who have never fished before, they just catch the trolling motor or like my Yamaha <laughs> <laughs> how, do, how, how do I get the type of people who hook a rooster fish, become a fly fishing guide and an advocate all within two hours of 
of beach fit. <laughs> if I could, if I, if there's like an email list that I could get on to communicate with those people, I would greatly appreciate that opportunity. You got to, dude, you got to remember this is Nick's version. If you talk to his friend, probably for their version, he would have been like, dude, <laughs> Shout out to that Jeff. guy was standing on the freaking line. He hooked me in the back of the head. You know what I mean? Like, holy moly. He was the lucky, he's the luckiest guy that ever walked the face of the earth. You know what I mean? Like, so this is, we're listening. We, you are, if you heard your client's version of the day, it would be dramatically different than your version of the day. Totally, totally true. And to be honest with you, I'm always the first to admit how big of a donkey I am, how big of an idiot I am and how lucky I am. And I've talked with so many people about this because I'll show people that photo and they'll be like, Oh dude, like what? Like you, you suck. Like that's ridiculous. Like how does that even happen to someone like you? And I'll be the first to admit, like I didn't deserve to catch a fish like that. Um, it was just, it was just how it happened, right? And, and Nick, all those, like all a, those, pi- all those pictures that everyone has. The real story is a little bit different. Well, right? yeah. and Some, when that's, sometimes there's sometimes there's a little bit of God's grace and luck, and you know, I mean, come on, we've all been in this. You've been in this too long to know that all those fishing shows that you see and all those things. You know, what they don't show is when the person accidentally stepped off the boat when they set the hook, right? Or they stepped on their fly rod and broke the tip or one of their knots failed or, I mean, to, and this is, I, I don't know if I've ever even brought this up on, on the podcast, but like just fishing. Uh, fly fishing but it's it's what took me from regular fishing to fly fishing but you know when you really do it a lot i think i think that the the best fishermen in the world are humble because they know that it is not anything that you can ever look and be like, I am a master. It's not like we get a black belt in, you know, like jujitsu and you've been doing it for seven years and you're like, okay, you passed the test. You got a black belt. There's so many other factors in what we do that are weather conditions and your focus and, you know, all of these things, a thousand different variables and a little bit of luck that go into it that, you really, it's, it's not, it's not logical when you have enough water under the bridge to be arrogant because you know, at any point in time, you can make one mental error and blow the cast at a fish of a lifetime and you'll never get that chance again. And it's miserable and you never forget it. And I think it's happened to all of us, but you go again because you hope and you want that chance again and you want to be better. So it's like a comp instead of like jujitsu or boxing or football or anything else, it's a competition against yourself because there are moments of just sheer perfection and, and, you are in the zone and your brain is perfectly connected to the outside world. And for just one moment, you can do no wrong. 
and and you feel it when you're fishing and you can you i can look at somebody and at a very brief moments throughout my life and i'll look at somebody and say i'm fixing to catch one i know it i know that the cast i just shot i didn't see the fish i don't know there's one but i feel it i feel it in my soul and i and boom it happens and i tell you like you know you go through your everything changes nothing stays the same and and your goals change and and you know what you want to get out of fishing changes and for me, I had a light switch moment like you with that rooster fish, because like, you know, when you have a kid and I'm not going to lie, like I, I pushed fishing on my kid because my, I had this ideal in my head that I, you know, I just wanted a fishing buddy that would never go away. And, and just, I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted my son to be that. And I, I've pushed him uh, probably a little harder than I should have. But I told Cody like this summer, you know, he was, he had just turned 14 and he, he fishes away from me now if we're not on the boat together. And I just had that moment like Dawn, he's fishing next to me, but he's a little bit away. He's close enough to where if he gets into trouble, I can help him but he's far enough away where he can do it on his own. And I've gotten us paddle boards and float tubes and micro skiffs and all that kind of stuff. Cause that's what he enjoys. So he's a little bit away from me and that boy, that sun's coming up and I just watched him and I watched perfection. And before that fly hit the water, I said, he's going to get one. And he, we hadn't caught a fish that day yet. And it was in the morning. We hadn't caught nothing. And I watched that fly go through the water. And I say, he's going to get one and damn two, two strips in bam. And he come tight on that. He didn't raise the rod trip. He strip struck and just very casually turned over to me at fish's tail walking across the water. And he looked at me and he goes, got one, dad. I was like, there's secret sauce right there. That's my goal now. Like I got to see it all the time and the pushing and everything else. And that was that one moment of just pure perfection that all that time went into and it was all suddenly worth it. And, you know, he's not my son there. He's my equal. Right. And that, that is dad. Shit. I, I wish I, I, I hope and I pray that no matter what sport, or what your activity you're involved, it could be skiing, could be mountain climbing, could be hockey, could be whatever. I hope every parent listens to this, listening to this gets that moment of perfection. Like, cause it is the best feeling in the world. For me, I think what makes fly fishing so intoxicating is that it's humbling no matter what, right? Like you, you never, you can't hit a pinnacle with it because there's, always more to learn and more to do and even when you do feel like you've hit that pinnacle it's so easy to be humbled because it's so complex so especially in today's age i think it's so easy for people to feel it's so easy for us to have problems with our ego right like with social media we all think the world revolves around us and when things go right like we have instagram for example like these ways to curate the way other people see us, right? So we we only show them 
the absolute best, what we're so proud of, right? And it pumps our ego up. But I think what's so intoxicating about fly fishing is that it destroys that ego, or at least it does for me. I guess I can only speak for myself when I say this. So I guess I know some pretty egotistical people in the fly fishing space. Not me. I'm perfect. I catch all the fish. I'm perfect. I've never had a bad day. I've never been skunked. I am a god. <laughs> yeah, the, the, that's what I think makes it so fulfilling for me is that it is always knocking me down. And Cody, you can attest to this because I've stepped on your boat more times than I can count and that you've seen me pull the fly out of plenty of fish's mouths and miss strip sets and do stupid stuff to ruin a moment. And it happens more often than not. And that I think is, actually the last time you did that was the day after we got back from the redfish thing and we did the captain's thing before you went home, we went fishing and I was on a work call with Tony and someone else. And I'm like, yeah, Tony, I'm paying attention. And then I'm like on mute and you're stripping it in. There's like a 32 inch snook falling your fly. And I'm like, leave it, leave it, leave it, leave it. And you pulled it out of the water and you're like, oh, and then I get back on. I'm like, yep, Tony. So anyways, about that, you know, meeting next Thursday. Some bullshit. So, and Tony just found out about this. So now I, now I'm disowned from ASGA. But, <laughs> you nah, added yourself. What we always say in the boat, right? That's, like, that's actually, dude, that's bonus material for <laughs> yeah, ASGA. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, that is what we are not, we are not normal. Um, you know, if, uh, yeah, that's, that is not, that is not a checkbox in the wrong column for our, for our jobs. I always say in the boat, like the Jesus, the Jesus cast doesn't get bit, right? Like, I don't know who I heard say that first. I'm sure that's someone else's, but I always say that all the time now where it's like someone you're fishing a little dock, right? And someone like skips it. And it's like the uh, happy Gilmore uh, final mini putt scene. It like goes off the pipe, down the thing, through the whatever, rolls out the clown's nose and goes under the bridge. And they're like, you're like, holy crap, that's like 33 feet under that bridge or under that dock. That one never gets bit. It's the one where they like cast it and it goes four feet from the boat and like the pilchards swimming around and they're like trying to untangle a bird's nest and you watch like a 40 inch snook eat it against the boat. And you're like, what the heck is happening? It's like, those are like the most humbling moments, right? Or when people are like, I'm like, hey, all right, we're going to fish that dock. Okay, I need you to cast right there. And they're like, I'm going to try the mangroves once. And then they hook one and you're like, what is the point of me? Like, why do, why do I even exist? You're like, yeah, no, the mangroves, that was a trick. And you pass the test. Good job. I'm such a great teacher. It's like I'm it's always you to be the, a free I'm, thinker. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to encourage you to figure this problem out on your own. That's how I build my business. Now it's it is so humbling. It is so humbling. There are some species that are way more humble. Like some are a lot more forgiving. Like a Louisiana redfish. Like sometimes you can, or even like a Northeast Florida redfish. Not just Louisiana. I mean, you can sting one pull a hook on it, slap the fly right back in his face. And he's like, oh, my face. Oh, a fly. And just eats it again. But like tarpon and musky and some of those other ones, it's like you do everything right. And that fish is still like, I hate you because you're wearing blue. Like I'm not eating that. And then they tail off. It is. It is very humbling. And I'm a, I'm a personal testament to that. And honestly, like in any of the guy jobs that I've been lucky enough to, to go work, I haven't deserved the opportunity. Like it wasn't because I was some stellar fisherman. It, you know, it wasn't because I was on a different level than my peers. It, if anything, I was way lower on the totem pole than the people I was competing with. But, you know, I, I, I've been lucky enough, I think, to get a lot of those jobs because I realized that I'm a, I'm a nothing in this game. And for me, when I started guiding, my biggest focus was on 
like the experience. Everything was about the experience for the person that I'm bringing out. It was less about the fish because I was never as good as the other guys. Like when I first went out to the Seychelles, I got laughed at. Like I, I was, I was the joke. And I'll tell you a story that will, it, <laughs> I'm going to shame myself with this one, but it, this gives you a little insight into, into my life as a fisherman. So I was lucky enough to get the call to go out there and they said, Hey, you know, we, we heard about you from one of our other guides. We want to have you out. Uh, you know, we, we trust that you're going to be good with this. And I said, you know what, I'm, I'm not the person you want. Like, I don't really have any saltwater experience. Um, I, I don't really know much about fishing, especially not fly fishing. They said, no, that that's perfect. That's almost the way we'd want it. Like, we'll teach you that stuff, but we know you're, we know you're good at working with people and that's something you can't teach. So that's what we want to know that you have. Everything else will teach you. So I went out there and for the first month you're out there, you're redoing the bottom paint on all the skiffs. You're, you're fixing the big mothership boat. You're doing all the grunt work that leads up to the start of the season. And one of the days they, they cut us loose a little bit early to go chase bonefish on one of the home flats. So I went out with one of the South African guys, uh, Rudy. He's a, he's a stud, amazing fisherman, amazing guy, just a, just great all around dude. And we walked together and we're walking on the flat and there's a pretty stiff breeze. I certainly couldn't cast into it. I, I was still such a novice when it came to casting or anything with fly fishing really. And Rudy said, Hey, there's, there's two bonefish coming in there. They're like 30 feet, you know, into the wind. Here's the rod. Just make the shot. If you, so long as you put it in, you know, uh, a six foot radius around them and twitch it, they're, they're going to eat it. They're all horned up right now. And I couldn't, I couldn't push the fly more than 10 feet out the tip of the rod. I just couldn't do it. I didn't know how to cast into the wind. They didn't really know how to cast. And Rudy laughed at me, scoffed, got frustrated, grabbed that rod right on my hand, and then made the shot himself and caught the fish. And it was like a bitch, sit down and be humble. And I like tucked my tail between my legs. And after that, it was like, okay, you know, I'm not... I'm not going to compete with any of these guys on any sort of level. And, you know, even after I'd been there for six months, like it was still, it's such an intricate atoll system to learn. Like it, it takes time. And, you know, I just, I wasn't as good as them. So I had to rely on, you know, other things. So for me, it was so much more about making the experience great for people. And it's not to say that I didn't guide nice fish there because I was lucky enough to to guide some very nice fish there. But on the whole, if you were to break it down into stats, I would be, I'd have been the worst guy there by landslide. I just didn't guide the same type of fish as frequently as all those other guys did. But, you know, no matter what my day was like, I could have my people coming back and being like, holy moly, you know, we, today was absolutely amazing. We absolutely loved it. Like they were genuinely excited about the day they had. And I found my little tips and tricks for, you know, if we weren't seeing fish, like how do I make this a memorable experience for them? How do I make this worth, you know, the tens of thousands of dollars they spent to come out here? And, you know, I, I tapped into that very early on in my stage and it's been a good metaphor for me in life with anything, right? With the job I'm working now, I didn't have any previous experience, but, you know, I, I relied on those base things like, okay, well, you know, I know the basic tenets of what it means to be a good human being. And if you can apply that to just about anything and help it work out in your favor. And that helped me with guiding so much. That is such a big part of guiding that people don't really talk about. 
as much. And part of it's related to the ego around the conversation. Like you said, like if, you know, if you ain't catching 50, like I am, then you ain't a true God. You're an eco tour, you know, like da, 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 those type conversations. But my first ever repeat, uh, client was someone that came down fish with me, man, I was so stressed. The trip was such, such a burden. I was kind of on fish i was fishing a lot of stuff that i knew were covered in snook we couldn't score a bite we were fishing bait too you know like wasn't even a fly trip we caught a couple snook and um i think maybe we caught like two two maybe two or three maybe three i think it was two though and that guy you know i got off the water started calling around to the guides i was sweating i went home i was so depressed you know sunburned dehydrated and i thought i had a very bad day that dude called back. It's like, Hey, I'm coming into town with my wife and my friends. We want to do, you know, uh, whatever. And he came back and he's like, man, the last time I was here with Cody, we caught a bunch of fish. We had such a great time. We joke. He knew so much about the estuary. Da, 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 da. And so this guy's idea of what the experience was kind of going full circle to what Tony said, like he had an amazing experience. And like my idea of what a lot of fish were in a great experience was so much different than his was. And I was dictating his experience based off my goals for what I want to say my trip was when in reality, that guy was like, that was the best. And he came back and did some more fishing. And I've really learned over time over the last three or four seasons to not script myself into how a trip has to go. You're going out to have fish, give people a break from reality, have a good time. And more often than not, people are very pleased with the experience, like you said. And it, that tangent, I won't even break off in that tangent, Tony, but I'm sure you're thinking of a couple of different things around the fisheries thing, right? And like what we hear some of these bigger boats talk about and what the goal is for fishing. And in reality, there's a lot of different goals for fishing, but for a vast, vast majority of the people, it's the experience. One of my favorite quotes is like, fishing is a perpetual series of occasions of hope, right? That's why you cast again. And so leaning into that makes you a better guide. You've just given us so many different examples and also given us a great example for what it means to have courage, you know, just do something, try it and figure it out along the way. Cody, I just want to, I just want to say one thing, you know, as we're kind of closing this one out, you know, uh, we've talked about being humble. We've talked about, you know, our experiences on the water and, and all the different factors that go in, to fishing and and what constitutes a good day and clients and expectations and gone and gone through all this and you know again you change you know nothing stays the same and uh, i was talking with a friend the other day and and they're like man you need to you need to get out dude you need to you know it's winter you're you got to remember why you love this. I can hear it in your voice. You know, you're getting, you're getting beat down. And I did. And I remembered, but you know, one other thing like struck me, you know, I kind of had like a little epiphany and you know, kind of have those breakthrough moments of growth. And I have a lot of those either when my wife's yelling at me or when I'm fishing. Right. So I've, I, those are the, those are my two growth opportunities. I found. the first one happens way more than the last. I was going to say I've grown, I've grown a lot in the past twenty something <laughs> years. So, um, you know, the one thing I always and I and and you know, 
this struck me when you were talking, Nick, because you were naming these people that were so, you know, foundational in in your growth and development, not just as a fishing guide, but as a person. And I've been lucky enough to have a lot of people like that uh, in my life. And and, you know, Blaine is a dear friend of mine and he's he's had the same mentors, a lot of times, same individuals. And that's one thing that Blaine and I just agree on. And, and like, we never forget that we're standing on the shoulders of the people that came before us. And I guess to bring it full circle with what we do and conservation and everything, not only do we owe the next generation a better future than what they, we have right now, is we, I owe all of those mentors that I'm currently standing on their shoulders that I never would have had the opportunities and I never would have had the life that I had. And I never would have got to see the things that I saw that I've seen and the things hopefully I'll see in the future. If they hadn't taken valuable time out of their lives and, and pushed me forward and made me better at what I do. So you know, I just don't know. I don't know anything else in the world that ties you to the past, present, and future and makes you want to be a more responsible, better human and better at your craft and better at dealing with people and bet just a, a better dad, a better husband a better dog owner i mean just something that pervades every single aspect of your life a pr more appreciative more grateful um more just more and everyone makes their decisions and everyone's got that one life to live and i just say like i'm I'm grateful and fortunate and, you know, I'll forever be on the lucky side because I could spend, I could never get another moment of grace or another lucky moment and I could pay it back for the rest of my life. And I wouldn't even get halfway there for what the people have done for me before me. So, you know, as we move forward and we do this stuff, I hope that this podcast encouraged people to speak up for the resource and to do the right thing and, and all that. And I know if, I'm not speaking for Nick or Cody because they have their own lives. I'll just speak for myself, but we're not, I'm not any kind of like conservation hero or, or anything like that, or any, frankly, anything, any person, anybody should listen to. I'm a lucky son of a bitch that I had just these giants, these just, titans these men that were just exponentially better than me give me their time and their advice and their knowledge and i stand on their shoulders and i try to i try to not embarrass them so i love that my my one takeaway i hope people get from this is that don't don't be afraid to to do something if you if you love something or have any sort of connection to it don't be afraid to fight for it and don't be afraid to just do anything. Even if it's the smallest of things, it's all still helpful, right? Like it's, uh, it's humbling 
it was humbling for me from my perspective to come out to Louisiana and see the the group of people who banded together and not just them, but all the people who weren't there, who still sent emails, signed letters, made comments, right? Like you, you realize you're a part of something so much bigger and it just adds fuel to the fire. So there, there's nothing too little to do. Just don't ever feel like you're excluded from helping in any way. And, and I'm a huge testament to that because, you know, I haven't been like, I'm not a lifelong guide in Louisiana. I've, I've fished there once and I love it. It, it changed me in a lot of ways and that's worth showing up to fight for. And I know that there are other people who've experienced it way more than I have. And I know throughout the coming years, I know we're going back in March here and I, I can't even begin to tell you guys how excited I am to, to get back down there, to go experience it again. But you, I think oftentimes we exclude ourselves from doing the right thing because we think we don't deserve it or we think we're not a big enough a part of it or whatever it is. But when it comes to conservation or when it comes to fighting for anything that you love, there's there's no gesture too small that doesn't help push the needle in the right direction for the greater collective of people fighting for it. So don't be shy to... Don't be shy to do the right thing. You should always be doing the right thing, whatever it is. Um, work, play, it doesn't matter. If it's the right thing, you make time in your life to do it. And for me, that's as simple as telling work I'm not coming in or that I'll stay up late into the night to get done what I need to get done and then schedule the flight and and go and do it because it's important. You know, For most people, that's a huge step, but... For me, that was just what I could do, and that was great. But I hope the sentiment that people grab from this is just don't be afraid to take action. Any action is good action for conservation, and I think we're we're starting to see all the positive aspects of you know people doing that one little thing. Well, Tony, typically we have a guest on, and they kind of share their experiences and sentiments, and then you know we try to find a way to tie it all together and put a big bookend on it, but. Nick just did that for us. So I don't know if we have anything else to say. Tell you what, like the, a lot of, a lot of these, a lot, and I'm, I'm not putting a bow on this. I'm going to talk about Nick for a second and Nick put a bow on it, but I think, I think good Lord puts people in your path and, and you gotta, you gotta figure out what the opportunity there is. And I think Nick got Nick got put into our path. Um, and I'm I'm grateful that I've I've gotten to know him. I look forward I look forward to all the funny fishing stuff and advocacy stuff, you know, that we'll bump into each other over the course of time. But you know, the one thing that got me about this podcast is incredibly how incredibly thoughtful this young man is and and um and 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 grounded and humble. And I think I think Nick brought the best out in us today, Cody, you know, really kind of made us think I look forward to having him on podcasts in the future. Um, if somebody wants something free from us, we've been doing this. If you got through the hour of this thing, uh, just messages like code Cody's been telling you on Instagram, just messes it message us, Nick Jones, and we'll give two things away. We'll give two more of them Patagonia tacos, rod tacos out. So that with the time, we'll look at the timestamp, whoever's first, just message us Nick Jones, because, you know, every time I, I get these young folks on this podcast, it gives me hope after my old ass is gone. 
that there's going to be a bunch of idealistic idiots that keep it going. And uh, I just want to thank, I want to thank Nick for coming to Louisiana and spending time with us on the podcast. I think uh, I'm just, I'm playing this out in my head, but I think Nick's going to be a fixture on our shop talk and uh, add his, add his experience to, to what we know in the collective, the collective thing that we're trying to do. So Nick, you know, thank you very much for being on here. Cody, thank you for introducing me to this young feller. And uh and thank all of y'all for listening. Um, so messages Nick Jones, get yourself a Patagonia rod, taco. They're awesome. Cody, thank you for being on here, buddy. Yeah, yeah. If anyone's listening to these and thinking, oh, every time they launch an episode, I'm just gonna fast forward to the end and try to win something. This is the last time that that damn promo code word is at the end of the podcast. Yeah, we're going to do it in like 25 and a half minutes next time. God, don't give them when yet, Tony. No, it could be 26 or 27 or maybe 42. I'm going to make it hard on your asses. You're actually going to have to study if you want to ace the test. I appreciate it. We'll look for that. Thank you, Nick, my friend. We'll teach you how to catch a snook on the fly one day soon. You'll figure it out. Appreciate having you here. <laughs> Looking forward to more fishing stories, buddy. 